welcome to another episode of Teaching Networks. I'm Kirk Faulkner. Craig Faulkner here. We're glad to be back. We're glad to have made it to five episodes. This is number five. That's awesome, isn't it? It does feel like a little bit of an accomplishment. Yeah. I don't know why. Five's a good number. I think the last couple of episodes have been really good, and I've felt a lot of pressure when I was getting ready for this one to come up with something good. So what'd you come up with? Well, I want to talk today about how to tell a story. story. And I know that you and I have gotten into this a little bit. We've used stories in our marketing. I think in your last lesson, when you were talking about how to get funding, Mm -hmm. you know, storytelling was a big part of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to dive in a little bit. I have what I'm going to call the five keys to good storytelling. Oh, great. I'm going to go off my little tangents about neuroscience, of course, because apparently that's my favorite thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that's great. When I think about storytelling, while you were telling that story, number one, it really conjures up some vivid imagery. Mm -hmm. And number two, it really creates quite an emotional stir within you, right? When you hear that story, and I'm sure it touched you. Also, the other thing I thought of when you said we're going to talk about stories is I thought about way back when in my financial planning days, uh, giving seminars, and one of the most effective things we did in our presentation, and we gave a lot of presentations and the seminars typically would go over two days, a time span of two days where we'd talk about all these elements. One of the most effective of things we would do is give specific stories or case studies. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big believer yeah. in stories in your formal presentations and talks and group settings, even if it's a one-on-one conversation, the conversations can be a lot more interesting if you can tell a story, make it concise, make it engaging. Well, I think those stories that you were telling in your seminar are a really great example I think one of the best things that a story can do is it can take you out of the transactional to the transcendent. I got that from this article that was talking about helping your employees tie into your business's bigger mission. And they said, the story of your job is like what happens, you know, the transactional element of it. That's not very inspiring. But if you can take them out of that with a story into the transcendent, like into the emotional part, into the how it's playing a bigger role, people get really tied into that. And I think that that is the key in a lot of cases. So I'll jump right into it. So one of the first things that you want to do in a story is you want to get into it and describe the experience and not commentate on the experience. You know, you want to get right into it and bring people along. You're not an outside person looking in on, on a story happening. You're reliving that story with them. You know, when we tell somebody what happened in a movie, we take them through beat by beat like we're watching the movie, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that sometimes when people are not used to telling stories, they will sometimes keep a little bit of distance from the story. It almost feels uncomfortable for them to relive the thing that happened again. But there's a really important reason why you want to relive what's going on in the story with somebody. And it goes all the way back to another thing that you and I like to talk about, which is the cave paintings. So one of the big things about human beings is that we have these things in our brain called mirror neurons. When you see somebody do something or you hear about somebody doing something, we have a not completely unique, monkeys can do it too, which is like why there's such a thing as monkey see, monkey do, but we can feel like we are doing it. Like we can put ourselves in the place of that. You know, Empathy is the same thing. We have kind of a unique ability to do that. And it turns out that that's actually our brain's way of learning things. When we see ourselves reflected in something or somebody's putting forth an idea, we want to put ourselves in that place. Those mirror neurons start to have us feel all the emotions that they're feeling and think about the things that they're doing and learn lessons from the series of things that happen. 
the first thing is, is you really have to present the story as if it's happening in the moment. That's a great point. It's great to understand physically what it's doing in your brain. One of the things that always drives me crazy when someone's telling a story, instead of just starting with the story many times, someone who's not good at telling stories will say, well, I've got this really fascinating, this captivating story that I want to tell you. You're just going to be on the edge of your seat. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking, okay, if you're going to tell me a story, just tell the story, <laughs> get into it. And now I see why yeah. that's so important. Because if you get into the story with the vivid imagery and the examples and the storyline, that triggers those, what did you call them? Mirror neurons. Mirror neurons mm -hmm. in your mind, and you start and you you actually emotionally get into that story. If there's this long preamble, I think it shuts down those mirror neurons. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's when people aren't comfortable just jumping into that story, they want to create this buffer between them mm -hmm. and the story. It's, some people are a little uncomfortable because you're reliving the story too. You got to go through all the emotions mm -hmm. again. And I was trying to tie it into the uh, cave paintings. You know, that's what drove people to paint on a cave originally is they were like, I am going to paint something so that other people can see themselves in it. This is me killing a buffalo. This is me with a woman. And other human beings were able to see themselves just in those cave paintings. And even though it's not a very complicated story, mm -hmm. that's why other animals aren't drawing you yeah. know, cave paintings. This is me inventing the wheel. Yeah. Yeah. This is me inventing the wheel. <laughs> this is me uh, catching myself on fire. Right. You know, it's all good, tough stuff. You're saying you don't like it when somebody does a big preamble. That actually brings me to my second point. And my second point is tension equals attention. If you don't have tension in your story, if there's not a question that needs to be answered the whole time, is he going to be okay? Is it going to work out? Does he learn the lesson? Will he solve the problem? If that tension doesn't exist, we don't pay attention to the story. And if we don't pay attention, then we're not processing it. It's not firing through our mirror neurons. Because the whole point of hearing a story, the whole you know, evolutionary point of it is to teach us to solve problems. It's a way for us to learn about how to live in the world so that if you tell me a story about how you handled something, then when I come up against that thing, I can then handle it in the same way. The second you start to relieve the tension of a story, people don't care anymore. So this is something that people will do a lot of the time. They'll be like, so I'm talking to this guy and he's trying to sell me this thing. Now this guy later turns out to be a huge crook, but right now, you know, and right there they've ruined the story. You know, they've skipped ahead in time. Mm -hmm. You know, they're trying to be Quentin Tarantino and tell the story out of <laughs> order. I mean, unless you're a really good storyteller and you can figure out the right way to do it, you want to stay in a sequential sequence so that you're telling the story in order and you want to make sure the end is going to answer the question in the beginning and that you're leading up to it. There's this tension going the whole time. That'll keep people engaged. And we talk about the goldfish attention span, mm -hmm. how people these days have an attention span shorter than a goldfish. You really do have to work to keep people tied into something. And so keeping that tension in the story is how you're going to keep them really focused in. The third thing is something that you've already kind of mentioned already. You need to fill your story with sensory language, sights, smells, feelings, all of these things that help people really put themselves there. There's a uh, Princeton University study that happened a little while ago where a woman told a story while she was in an MRI machine, you know, and they were taking pictures of uh -huh. her brain imaging while she was telling the story. And she told the story in English and then she told the story in Russian. So while she was telling the story, 
there's these two parts of your brain that are your kind of talky parts and those parts lit up but then as she was talking about smelling something in the story her factory sense lit up so her smelling part of her brain lit up and she was talking about something scary in the story her amygdala or her abdullah obligata you know lit up <laughs> and as she talked about all these different things all the different parts of her brain lit up so then they had people listen to the story and as they were listening to the story, the exact same parts of their brain were lining up. And they figured out that if you're a very good storyteller, if you're telling a story to like a room full of people, you can get to a point where every single person in the room, every part of their brain is lighting up in unison. And I know you've been in those presentations where you really got the audience and it feels right. like everybody's kind of coming together mm -hmm. at once. That's what's happening is everybody's brain is doing the exact same thing because you've started telling the story. Everybody's living it in their head at the same time. You're clearly communicating well enough. You're bringing enough of these sensory things to tie people's brains into it. And it's like, Everybody, you know, just kind of one big unison all comes together and lives the story all together. And that's a really, really powerful experience if you've ever, I mean, we've all been in it right, somewhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I feel like TED Talks end up like that a lot. Yeah, they do. And that's a great feeling when you're a presenter and you recognize that everybody's with you. So that's interesting that their brains are literally lighting up. Yeah. We talk a lot about Jordan Peterson, but he has a whole thing where he says that a lot of times the way that he figures out if something he's saying is true or not is he tells it to a whole bunch of people and watches how they react to it. Well, he lights up a lot of people. Yeah, he does light up a lot. <laughs> both good and bad. Good and bad. <laughs> both ways. But if he's talking to a big room full of people and the whole audience has that kind of tied in look to them, he knows that he's hit on something that's very important. So that's a very important aspect of it. So I think that's three so far. What do we do? We did describe the experience. Don't be a commentator. Mm -hmm. Tension equals attention, and then use sensory language. And then the fourth one is you really have to tie things into emotions that everybody feels, like very universal emotions. And this goes back to something we talked a little bit about during the motivation episode, because if you're talking about emotions, you start to release oxytocin, you start to release cortisol if it's something scary, oxytocin mm -hmm. if it's something you know happy. And your body actually goes into a chemical state of a person who is in that situation. This is what advertising and marketing has gotten so good at, is that they're able to take us through whole stories very quickly and give us a shot of these emotions. It's one of the quickest ways that you can get to trust with somebody or that you can build a relationship. And so like in 30 seconds, they've mastered taking people on the whole story ride. Um, well, that makes sense. I mean, when you think of some of the most effective type of advertising marketing that you can do, it's offering testimonials. And what is the single most effective thing about testimonials is when the person who actually had the experience is skilled enough to share share their experience in a concise fashion, and that lights up the viewer or the reader during their experience. Yeah, absolutely. So there's kind of two parts of your brain that understand language, and one of them understands what's called motor speech, and one of them understands something called sensory speech. The motor speech is just kind of like if I told you how to program your VCR, mm -hmm. and I gave you step one, step two, step three, step four, that would be the motor speech. But then if I told you after you're done programming your VCR, you're going to feel just like so much pride and joy that you had programmed your VCR. You're going to be so happy. <laughs> your wife's going to look at it and say, oh, I love you so much. Now, all of a sudden, 
I've added that other element and what was just kind of cold clinical instruction has this new like motivational aspect to it that's tied into emotion. So really what I think is interesting is you don't have to get crazy with the emotions. You don't have to be like, I felt like the happiest man on the, uh, you can just say I was happy. I felt bad. I felt angry, like kind of these big emotions and people register it. You know, they mm-hmm. felt bad. They felt angry. They've felt happy. They'll go along with you on that. And getting people into the same emotional state of mind that you were in when you're telling a story is uh, super powerful. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. So I only got one more. One more. We're going through this too fast. No, because I've got, got a couple, a lot of, couple of stories that I want to share and I want to have you dissect them. Yeah, let's definitely do that. We'll get into some storytelling. So the last one's kind of an obvious one, but it's not obvious in a, in a slight way. It's the, a big part of storytelling is what you don't tell. Like you need to tell your story so many times that you figure out everything that you can take out of it. I heard a phrase that I had never heard before. It's a quote from somebody that said, perfection is not achieved when there is nothing more to add, but when there's nothing left to take away. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's That's really, really true with storytelling because any element that is in your story that isn't adding up to that big punchline at the end, that isn't adding up to that big emotion, that big payoff you want, it's just drag on your story. You know, mm-hmm. it's like if you were designing a, do you remember when we uh, designed the, uh, what are those cars called? Pinewood, Pinewood Derby? Derby. Yeah. We designed possibly the best Pinewood Derby car in existence. That's we did. We sanded the Pinewood Derby car down till it was like half a centimeter yeah. wide. <laughs> it was razor thin. Yeah. And then there was all these lead weights that you could right. put on it. And you had the idea to melt the lead weights in a spoon uh-huh. So that we ended up with this kind of spaceship looking disc on the top of it. And it had no drag. Yeah. We dominated. We did. I couldn't believe how many people in would fact, be with that in thing. Fact, I don't know if you remember this or not, but you got first prize yeah. that year. And then we repainted it. And then we repainted it. <laughs> and we used it the following year and got first prize. And Chuck Graham was very irritated with us and contested. <laughs> Took it to the board. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the only key to that car was that there was no drag on it. You know, it was completely streamlined. You know, when your stories are like that. And the best way to get a story like that is to tell it over and over over and over again. Uh, Now that can be painful for the people you know real well sitting through the story over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. So this mirror neuron thing, right? Is it mirror like a mirror on the wall? Yeah, like a mirror that you would look in. So people who have a really strong empathy are also the people who do this. Have you ever told someone a story and then two weeks later you catch them telling that story like it happened to them? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, they're not always doing that on purpose. A lot of times, because the way your memory works, they actually do think it happened to them. And then you go, hey, that didn't happen (laughs) to you. That was mine. And they always have this look on their face with like, oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> oh, it is yours. <laughs> like, usually that. you want to call BS on them and say, yeah. no, you knew that was mine. Yeah, but like, right. often just because of the way that you file things away in your brain, they actually are operating from a place where yeah. they feel that's their story now. That's interesting. I still think they knowingly yeah, are absolutely. ripping me off. <laughs> but I'll have a little more uh, patience and grace towards them. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, we could get into a whole bunch of other aspects of story. I know one thing that you always love to focus on when we talk about presenting. See, you and I had like a year where all we did was talk about the concept of presentation. Right. And that is 
huge. I mean, storytelling and presentation are almost the same. Goes thing. hand in hand. Yeah. Right. And, you know, we talked a lot about the concept of like the beginning, middle, and the end. Mm-hmm. I actually went online today in preparation for this. There's a, a little storytelling class you can take that was written by the animators at Pixar. And it's all about how they make up a story. You know, they did the three act structure and they had it broken down into there's three parts of the first act. It's once upon a time, every day he, but then one day, huh. once upon a time, you introduce the character. Right. Every day, you tell what he did and you introduce the, the world he okay. lived in. Introduction, body of the story. Yeah. But then one day, and that's the inciting incident, something changed. So he had a regular life, something changed, things were out of whack. Then the second act is, because of that, he, blah, 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 blah. And because of that, he, blah, 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 blah. And because of that, he, blah, blah, blah. So the second part is all the journey. And then the third part was, finally, so that's kind of the end of all the action. And then from that day, he always, and then now you're at a new reality. I thought that was a pretty good encapsulation of the three-act structure. I'll put a link to this because it's free. It's a free course. Oh, that's that's awesome. You know, thinking about storytelling makes me think about the presentation cycle that I refer to that I created when I wrote the training course called the Science of Seminar Sign. This was years ago. And I noticed with all the presentations that I created, what I did kind of just instinctively is I began a presentation with general information, then I would back that flow of the presentation up with technical or very specific information. So it went general, technical, specific, that'd be phase two of the presentation cycle. Mm -hmm. And the third phase is you really bring home the points of the general and specific with stories and case studies. So if you go general, technical, and stories, it can have a very, very dramatic impact. I'll give you a specific example. One of the things that we talked about in our financial planning workshops is we talked about the importance of tax planning and working with a professional that was going to make sure that you did your tax planning efficiently. When I first started out doing these financial planning workshops, I would talk about alternative minimum tax. And I would go through a calculation to help people understand what I thought was going to help people understand what alternative minimum tax was. What happened when I went through that calculation was there eyes just glazed over. So I was spending too much time on that technical information. So I decided instead of going through two or three slides talking about this technical information on alternative minimum tax, which is called AMT, I decided that I would just put up one slide that said AMT. And so I put up the slide that said AMT and said, now, does anybody know what AMT stands for? And occasionally there'd be one or two people raise their hand and say, well, isn't that alternative minimum tax? I'd say, you're right. And then I would explain conceptually what alternative minimum tax was. It's a concept where after you take a certain number of deductions, the government is no longer going to let you take any more deductions, and they're going to tax you at either the greater of the regular tax rate or the alternative minimum tax rate. So as I was explaining this, and this actually happened, I told them that I had a prospect, someone who attended my seminar, come into my office, and they wanted me to review their tax return and a tax sheltered investment that they invested in. Now, this was years ago when the tax codes were different. And so this person came in, it was actually a physician who had a very, very high income one year, but also had a lot of deductions. And the financial advisor that he'd been working with told him that he ought to put $100,000 in this tax shelter. 
Well, what the financial advisor didn't understand was the calculation and the ramifications of this alternative minimum tax. The $100,000 investment got the person $100,000 in tax deductions. They filed for those deductions. They took the deductions. They lowered his tax bill by $50,000. But about 18 months went by, he was audited, and those deductions were disallowed because he was subject to AMTR alternative minimum tax. So what happened was he had to pay the back taxes of $50,000. Plus, I think at that time, it was a 20% penalty, 20%. So that was another $10,000. And during that 18 months, the tax shelter wasn't an economically viable investment. And he lost the $100,000. That's, that's a tough So road. that was a $160,000 loss. I would tell the story, I'd take a step forward and I'd say, one of the things that we can do in our complimentary consultation is we can take a look at your tax planning and your investment strategy and make sure they go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And boy, I'll tell you, stories like those, and they're true stories, stories yeah. like those were stories that got people into these complimentary consultations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and if you had just done that as a math problem and just kind of put it, you know, fact after fact, it would have none of the emotional resonance. Right. And it's so funny because all you said about this guy was he was a physician. I just got a few little details about him uh -huh. and already I'm like way more tied into what happened to him. I can kind of imagine him. Right, know? right. You know, it's so interesting when you, and I probably told that story and this was, my gosh, this was certainly 25 years ago. Now it's been a long time since I've told that story, but it's still in my memory deck. Yeah, I told it a lot better in the seminar, but it was amazing after you tell something like that a dozen times, boy, you know when to pause, you know when to take a step forward and look someone square in the eye in the audience. You get really, really good at that. And so I think one of the reasons you're bringing this up, now you're a great storyteller. You have your mom's ability to really use words and imagery to really pull people in. I want to say storytelling perhaps comes maybe a little more naturally to you than others. But I think one of the things you're saying is, listen, whether it comes naturally or not, you can look at these five steps and you really can become very, very proficient in telling a story that motivates, that inspires, that helps people accept your call to action or whatever you're trying to accomplish with that story. That's one of the great things about storytelling is there's almost nothing a story can't do. I mean, right. you can use them they can be funny. Like your story, I think, is something I wasn't thinking about until right now, but stories are a great way to explain really complicated things, things that are too hard to internalize or a lot of numbers or a lot of steps. You tell a very simple story of somebody who goes through the process. Somebody could walk away from your presentation about AMT. They might not even remember what AMT stands for, but they remember it's important now. Exactly. And that was precisely my point. So I think that one other from my memory bank that I'll pull out that I loved using when I'm talked about estate planning, we talk about estate planning, the importance of estate planning. We'd talk about AB trust, living trust. We'd talk about revocable charitable trust. We'd go into a lot of detail. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we'd start general, very specific. And then 
I would typically talk about clients that I've seen spend a lot of money on estate planning documents where the size of their estate, where it really wasn't necessary. Mm -hmm. I'd talk about clients who had grossly outdated estates where the management of their estate was going to go to their brother and sister-in-law who are now divorced and live in separate states. I mean, there can be a lot of complications that can occur with estate planning. One of the advantages, I would say, of coming in and talking to us as a financial advisor is we can look at your estate plan, even though we're not estate planning attorneys, we've seen a lot of different estate plans. We can refer you to the appropriate estate planning attorney and we can help champion that work. So if all you need is a minor tune-up on your estate plan, you don't end up with a major overhaul. I love that statement, minor tune-up versus a major overhaul. What we were inferring is, listen, you could spend a lot of money, tens of thousands of dollars on an estate plan that may not be necessary. We'll be your advocate in the marketplace to make sure that doesn't happen. Wow. Yeah. People talk about storytelling in business. A lot of times I don't know what they're really getting at, but this is exactly it. You know, This is mm-hmm. how you're helping people tie into these concepts creating that little avatar for somebody to be in a story like they get to go through the story as the main character is just a really great way to have them experience things that are outside of their realm of knowledge outside of anything that they've come into contact with and you're really able to walk away from a very good story like you've lived a whole other life Mm -hmm. you know that's why i love talking to really smart people who've you know got a great amount of knowledge in something you can kind of come away with a really well-placed story you can come away like you've lived their whole life you got like some of their lessons out of it. Well, I think that's very true. Again, you know, going back to those steps and going back to those mirror neurons firing off, you know, you start to understand how dynamic that story can be. Another little tip that I would give our listeners is when you're giving a story, if you're using a PowerPoint presentation, for example, I have found the most effective stories are told with a backdrop of one single pictorial theme. In the case of alternative minimum tax, I just had the acronym or the letters AMT in big, bold block type. But if I was going to tell a story about being shipwrecked on an island, I would have a beautiful island. I may have a boat sinking, but I would take one pictorial theme Mm -hmm. and then I would begin to tell my story, that pictorial theme. The mistake that I see people make is they will tell a story and they will have a lot of text. They'll go through bullet item after bullet item after bullet item thinking that they're going to reinforce these items. Mm -hmm. And I think your five steps really graphically illustrate to me why that is so detrimental. Yeah. It's that whole transactional versus transcendent. You don't want the mechanics of everything. You want the feelings of it. You want the experience of it. And yeah, I guess I'm the same way when I present with visual aids. I like them simple. I like them clear. I like Mm -hmm. them to hit hard. I don't like a lot of text. If it's an image, I like there to be a real feeling to the image. I want it to communicate emotionally. I know that some people have more technical jobs and they're expected to include all of this more technical mumbo jumbo. And the thing you were talking a little bit about in the funding episode about the pitch deck and pitch decks are supposed to have a little bit more information on them. Yeah. Yes, they do. But at the same time, maybe that just makes it all the more important that your story 
of your vision for the company like really stands out and like can kind of stand on its own? Or what do you think about storytelling in the pitching process? Well, I think it's still important. And again, I would go back to the general information, the technical and specific information Mm -hmm. and the stories and case studies. If I were preparing a pitch deck today, I would give an overview of the company. I would give specific information, you know, and we talked a little bit about that technical information. And then I would give a very specific stories. For example, if a reason for your success in business is due to, you know, most small businesses is due largely to very, very happy, satisfied customers because of customer service, I would want to really showcase that. And I would want to kind of push my chair back in a presentation while I was giving the pitch, I'd want to talk about one or two stories that graphically illustrated how satisfied are the lengths we go to have satisfied customers. And then you circle back to the general technical and then the story. So there really is a flow. You know, if you look at that presentation cycle, I mean, it's yeah. very, very simple. It just has those three things and it just goes around and around. When you talk too much about general information, You don't engage people. And chemically in the brain, you're not tripping all those receptors. If it's too technical, you're tripping over them. And so again, I think the glue that holds that all together is going to be those stories. It becomes extremely important. Yeah, I think that general information in the beginning is important to get people to identify, to make it clear to them, this story that I'm going to take you on, it applies to you this is the situation that you're in. And then the technical information is just a way to signify to them. I know what I'm talking about. You know, I've done the research. I have the information, but then yeah, finishing off with that emotional, you know, what that makes me think about a little bit is the challenger sale, taking people through that. That's a great book. That is an awesome book. I think it's a very fresh way to look at the sales process. What I find humorous about that book, I smile whenever I hear the title because so many people think that what you're supposed to do is challenge people. (laughs) You should buy this. You should buy this. (laughs) And what you're really supposed to do is you're supposed to tell a story that challenges the way they've been viewing the problem. And you're offering a unique solution. You know what that is? And that's another term that we used a lot when you and I were talking about the presentation is insight. A story is a great way to deliver an insight. And one way that I like to think of an insight is when you help people reframe the world, Mm -hmm. reframe a problem so that they see something that they thought they knew exactly how it was. They see that it was just slightly different and that there's another strategy that they can use with it. Or there's another, we're talking about that in regards to business, but that's how fairy tales work. You know, that's how like, oh, absolutely. You know, little kids stories. Yeah. That's the moral of a story Mm -hmm. is like, oh, you know, this is how life seems like, but if you just shift it just this way, things work out so much better. They do. I mean, that's one of the most valuable things that you can deliver in a story. I think it'd be useful, Kirk, to have you just recap those five things. Yeah, let's go through uh, them again. One more time real quick, because we've talked in the first four episodes, I'm not sure where, but we talked about being a Unconscious competent. And I think that if you have trouble telling stories, if you're not an unconscious competent with storytelling, you can become a conscious competent with these five steps. Yeah, I think even if you're a conscious competent, you can get better. So the first thing is you want to describe the experience and not be a commentator. So you want to really relive the experience with the person, go through it with them beat by beat. One of my favorite ways to tell a story is okay. I'm 17 years old and I'm in college and I'm going to this class. I like to tell it like it's happening right Right. 
now. Yeah. That's a really great way to pull people right into it. The next thing is you want to create tension because tension equals attention. That's the best way to keep people's attention is that there's a problem and the answer's not going to come to the end. We're moving towards the answer. Don't give things up too early. Tell things sequentially. And this is something I didn't hit on as much, but really make sure that the end of your story brings people back to the beginning of your story and answers something. When I tell stories, I actually am part of like a storytelling group here. When I tell my stories, maybe one of the best stories I've ever heard. I'll couch it inside my own story. So when I was 17, 18 years old, I was a freshman in college and I was still trying to decide what I was going to major in. I was taking a bunch of different classes and kind of out of nowhere, I decided I would take a class called disease and public health. It was a science class. It was the only science class I took in all of college. And it was taught by this guy who was a parasitologist. Like all he did was study parasites and what they did and how to cure them. For half the year, he would teach at BYU. And then half the year, he would go and travel around the world. And he would visit small populations of people who didn't have very good medicine. And he would bring the medicine and help cure the parasites that they were dealing with. And so he was telling the story about one time he went to the Congo. And as he was traveling through the Congo, there is a parasite in the Congo known as river blindness. I actually wrote down the real name of it. It's onchocerchiasis. Basically, you get bit by a black fly and its larvae go in you. And for as long as you have this parasite, these larvae just eat their way across your skin. And they say that the itching sensation that comes from it is unlike anything you've ever felt. It's just the strongest burning itching sensation. And they kind of go from one end of your body to the other. They just eat and eat. And the parasite can last for 15 years in a person. Oh my gosh. And the reason it's called river blindness is because eventually they make their way across your eyes and you lose your sight. Your eyes go cataract milky and, and you can't see anything. And so that's one of the big things that they would cure as they went through Africa, because it's actually very easy to cure. We have all the medicine to cure it, but you know, a lot of people don't have access to that. And so one day they went to this village and they were, you know, helping people with this disease. So the disease lasts about 15 years. It also eats up all the elasticity in your skin. So you mm. get really wrinkly. You look like a million years old. And so this old man came up who had obviously gone through the whole process with this parasite. His whole body was covered in wrinkly skin. He was blind. And he had this little piece of paper that he kept folding and unfolding and kept trying to hand to my teacher. And they couldn't figure out for the life of him what this piece of paper was. And so they were there for a while and they treated everybody and they did what they could for this guy, but it looked like he had had the disease maybe 30, 40, maybe even 50 years ago. And finally, just as they were about to leave, they talked to one of the older members of the village and he told them that about 40 or 50 years ago, the French missionaries had come through the Congo and had kind of been doing the same thing my teacher was doing. They were handing out medicine. The way that they helped everybody is they got the whole village together and everybody who had a disease that needed help with, they gave them a little piece of paper with a number on it. And then they called them one by one. And apparently the missionaries had left the village before they called this guy's number. Oh, that's horrible. And so for 40 years, he'd held on to this piece of paper with his number on it. And he was just waiting for his number to get called. My teacher, when this happened to him, that was when he decided that that was what he's going to spend his life doing. He didn't want more people to be waiting to get help because he wasn't there for them. And when he told me that story, 
I wanted to become a doctor. I wanted to become a parasitologist. <laughs> now I didn't. Right. <laughs> if I had, that would have made this a very effective story. But this story, I think, really shows why storytelling is so powerful. And it actually is a pretty good lesson in how to tell a story. Well, that's awesome, boy. I appreciate you sharing that with me. It gets me more excited to refine my storytelling skills because I have been over the last really three decades, really, I have been such a big believer in storytelling. But as you know, I believe there's always room for us to improve. Yeah, absolutely. And you've taught me something All here. right. Yeah, that was Great a good one. Great teaching moment. One of the things I was reading today is, um, so say you're making a YouTube video and you wanted people to subscribe to your YouTube channel. They said, you should have on one of your videos, a video of you subscribing to a YouTube channel uh -huh. so people actually see what you're doing. Because once people hear or see what you're doing, it's easier for them to do it. So right. take that advice and say, right now, I am going to iTunes uh -huh. and I'm opening up iTunes. I'm searching for teaching moments and I am leaving it a five-star review. I'm writing a review I telling how much I love this podcast. <laughs> and yeah, we're so grateful to everybody who tunes in and listens. This has been a really fun experiment. We got several more coming. Yeah. I don't Absolutely. Know. No, great job, Kirk. I learned something. I'm excited to teach you. Next time. Next time. All right. <laughs> Until next time.